Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the homes of many of you. Thank you for opening up your homes to us and some of you yet today. It's good to see the infamous sunshine from the Sunshine State. Uh, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Even if it was cloudy, we would say that, right? We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 today, primarily focusing on verse 14, and I'll be uh, preaching on a subject that is one of my favorites. I think that if I knew I had one Sunday left to give, I would probably preach on this subject, um, though I'm not sure. But we'll be talking about justification uh, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, but not in a heady sort of uh, you know, theological, academic way, but rather what we might call applied justification, and specific with, with respect to spiritual warfare and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 6, 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. So we'll be looking at that last phrase, and when we consider the breastplate of righteousness, we need to understand that there's two aspects of righteousness, both of which serve as armor against Satan's attacks, and one is our justification righteousness, which is where I'll really be focusing the most this morning. That is Christ's perfect obedience to the law and which becomes ours by faith in Christ. And the other righteousness is our sanctification righteousness, our conformity to God's commandments as Christians. So our justification, the the justification obedience of Christ is the righteousness in which we stand The sanctification obedience is the righteousness in which we walk by the Spirit. And it's possible, I think, that Paul is referring to these two aspects of it in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, where he has a very similar verse to this one, describing the breastplate there as one of faith and love. He says there, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet to the hope of salvation. So there, the helmet of salvation is identical to here in Ephesians 6, but the breastplate is described differently. Rather than a breastplate of righteousness, it's described as a breastplate of faith and love. But faith, of course, is that which lays hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and love is a perfect summary of sanctification righteousness, summing up all the law and all the duties and commandments of it. So, Let's first look at sanctification righteousness as armor against Satan's attacks. Satan, as you are well aware, is called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to tempt us to sin and then turn around and throw it in our face and point out that we have failed and that we have displeased the Lord. He knows that when we sin, we lose confidence in prayer. And if we lose confidence in prayer, then, of course, we can't ask in faith. Faith is, goes together with confidence in God. If we don't get the requests that we make, our prayers will be useless. And let's face it, prayer is one of the essential aspects of spiritual warfare, one of the main things that we do in spiritual warfare. And wouldn't Satan love to cripple that, to cripple our prayer lives, and render our prayer lives completely useless and ineffective. We see that principle of confident prayer 
connected with righteousness or obedience in 1 John 3, 18 through 22. You'll see this connection there. After that, we'll jump to John 15. But in 1 John 3, 18 through 22, John says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That is, if we are doers of the word, not just talkers, not just hearers. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. It's a very clear connection between obedience to God's commandments and confident effectual prayer. And that is also emphasized in John 15, 7 through 10, when Jesus is talking about abiding in him. He says there, starting in verse 7, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. That's effectual prayer. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abide in the Lord, and you will have effectual prayer. How do you abide in the Lord? By keeping his commandments. So you see this connection between practical righteousness sanctification, righteousness, and effectual prayer. So it's crucial. Um, You see it also as you look down further in Ephesians chapter 6 and you get to the shield of faith, which is very much connected to prayer, and then Paul brings up prayer specifically. We cannot have effectual prayer without faith, and we cannot have a robust faith without walking in God's commandments. Ephesians 6, 16 through 20, down a little ways there, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. There's prayer in the context of spiritual warfare and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So, when we succumb to Satan's temptations and we disobey God's commandments, we are essentially restocking Satan's quiver with fiery darts, which he then turns around and shoots at us. So we're helping him. We're giving him ammunition, supplying our arch enemy with accusations and arguments to use against us. He doesn't need our help. Satan is a liar, and he's not above making stuff up, but it's more effective to use the truth, to just bring up true stuff about us, to accuse us with. But when we put on the armored breastplate of righteousness, we protect ourselves from Satan's accusations, walking in obedience. 
So let's apply this to specifics. If you have fallen into the bad habit of neglecting the Word of God, Satan will throw that in your face, and your conscience will agree, and that will hinder your prayers. But if you have a regular discipline in the Word, then Satan cannot use that as ammunition against you. You have put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you have been rude and mean and disrespectful to your spouse or to your parents or to your children or your siblings or your coworkers, Satan will be able to accuse you of that and your conscience will have to agree. And this will hinder your prayers. Think of 1 Peter 3, 7. It's applied to husbands here, but it could be applied beyond that. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, even the wives, according to knowledge, giving an honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. So many times our prayers are hindered because of our not dwelling with other people in an understanding way. Here, specifically, husbands toward wives, not in a gracious, understanding way. If you are indulging lust through porn, then, of course, Satan will, arm, will be armed with many flaming arrows to shoot at you, and your conscience will accuse you, and you will have no heart to pray. Your prayers will be empty and powerless. Amen. The same is true if you're participating in gossip, if you're getting drunk, if you're gluttonous, if you are serving some created thing as an idol, if you are hypocritical, if you are bitter and unforgiving towards someone, if you're wasting time in vanity and you know it, if you're losing your temper with other people and having outbursts of anger. And this is not to say that a Christian is perfect. No Christian is. Far from it. It's not possible to be sin-free in this life. But we're talking about willful, deliberate sin. Things that your conscience keeps crying out to you about and you keep ignoring it. That's a good way to leave yourself unarmed and exposed and powerless before the enemy. That's not putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That's leaving yourself exposed Putting on the breastplate of righteousness would involve repentance and obedience. So that's the aspect of sanctification righteousness and how that is to be a shield for us against the fiery darts of the evil one. Now let's consider the other aspect of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that is ours through faith. And this aspect is exceedingly important, just all around, but... In the context here with spiritual warfare, it's vitally important, and I would argue that it is even more important than sanctification righteousness, as important as that is, because, number one, there's a logical primacy to it. You cannot have sanctification righteousness without having first the imputed righteousness of Jesus put into your account Amen. through faith. And additionally, what I hope to show is that putting on this righteousness as a breastplate is often preventive medicine 
for sanctification righteousness failures. Or to put it another way, putting on the righteousness of Christ by faith helps you put on sanctification righteousness. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But let's just go back to the beginning, to the garden, and consider the problem and then the solution that has been provided. The problem is that outside of Christ, we are unrighteous. And that's not a small problem, it's a huge problem. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Why was that? Because they were righteous. They had no sin guilt to make them ashamed. They had no sin guilt to make them ashamed before God and before each other. They were at ease with God, and they were at ease with each other. Then they sinned, and they became ashamed of their nakedness. And then they were not uncomfortable, they were not comfortable anymore in front of each other, and certainly not before God. So they set out instinctively to fix the problem that they had created, to fix the problem of their nakedness. They sought to solve it without God's help, to be their own saviors. So they looked around at the various trees in the garden. They found one that had leaves that seemed to be suitable for their purpose, and they picked them off, and they sewed them into loin coverings to cover their nakedness. And when you think about that pathetic solution, it really is a good emblem of self-salvation. It doesn't work. (laughs) Like, this is not cutting it. The fig leaves gave them a modicum of respectability with each other. How do I look? Not bad. But when God shows up, the futility of the fig leaves becomes immediately apparent, doesn't it? The leaves provided no such confidence before him, and that's why they dove for the bushes. They did not want to talk to God. They didn't want to see God. They wanted God to go away. But God didn't go away. He queried them, and then he punished them. But then he gave them the first gospel promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15. And he clothed them himself with animal skins, which many look at as a an indicator of the first sacrifice. Only God can fix the nakedness problem. That's the lesson. Only God can provide the clothes that you and I need. Sinners cannot save themselves by the work of their hands. God must do it. God must do the work. Salvation is of the Lord. And here's the thing that we really need to understand. What happened there in the garden was not a little thing. It was a massive thing. It was not a little fall. It was a colossal fall. You and I would be radically different people right now if there had been no fall. Radically different. So different that you can't quite even get in touch with it. 
We are the way we are because of the fall. We are pathologically insecure because of the fall. We were created by God to have communion with him, to enjoy fellowship and peace with him, and to bask in his approval, and the fall ruined all of that. When that was destroyed, it brought upon us profound consequences. You cannot be alienated from your God and be normal and be a well-adjusted person. You can't. If you are alienated from your God, you are a mess. You are exceedingly insecure, whether you know it or not whether you know why you're insecure or not. Think of this with respect to human relations within a family. If you had a father who was unhappy with you all the time, he couldn't be pleased. Everything you did was wrong, always harping at you, always on you, always picking at you about everything. You cannot be a child in that home and be unaffected by that. It's impossible. It cannot be otherwise. The father-child relationship is huge, as is the mother-child relationship. We could apply it that way, too. But if the, if the lady at the counter at Walmart is upset with you, that's, that's one thing. You'll get over it. But if your father is always upset with you, you can't just get over that. Even if the reasons why he's upset with you, like three-fourths of the time or more, are trivial, and you know it. You know he's being unreasonable. Even then, you can't get over that. You are hardwired to desire his approval, and if you don't have it, you've got issues. Well, let's just extrapolate that billions upon billions of times with respect to God. God is holy, holy, holy. He is not pleased with sin, and yet we sin multiple times a day, and he's not pleased with that. It's not okay, and you can't live without his approval. How do you just get over it? You don't. You can't. I'm talking mainly here about what it is like to be an unbeliever in this world. So that describes some of you in this room. But for those of you who are believers in this room, there's a carryover effect as well. The reason we have to put on the armor of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, is because this problem still remains with us. It's still an issue. So if you need the approval of God, but you don't have it, it not only makes you alienated from God and insecure and restless and essentially a permanent thumbsucker, but it also causes you to want, not want to be near God. It makes you compulsively search about for fig leaves to cover nakedness, your nakedness of your unrighteousness. You need to cover up that sin, your mess. But because you don't want to be near God and His holiness, you hide from Him and you run the opposite direction 
looking for ways to save yourself, looking for ways to sow on your own righteousness. That was the problem with the Jews, although not exclusively their problem. It's a human problem. But in Romans 10, 1 through 4, Paul said of the Jews, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, fig leaves, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, or goal, or purpose of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That was the problem with the Pharisees as well. They were obsessed with establishing their own righteousness. That was their fig leaves. And just as the fig leaves worked, quote-unquote, worked for Adam and Eve with each other, gave them a certain comfortable ability around other sinners, so the Pharisees trusted to such things. But such things are worthless in the presence of God. The only people that fig leaves ever impresses or fools are other sinners, before whom you will not stand and answer. In fact, for the self-righteous, God is not in their thoughts. He's in the subconscious, but he's not foremost in the thoughts. They are entirely consumed with other people and how this looks good before my neighbor and how I might look better than you and be doing better than you are. That's the all-powerful, consuming thought. In Matthew 6, 1 through 2, Jesus warned, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have your reward. Uh, You have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And verse 5, just down a few verses, he adds, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In verse 16 of that chapter, he says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And then in Matthew 23, 5-7, Jesus gives this same description of them. Regarding the Pharisees and all the woes he pronounces upon them, he says, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, and they love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. All false professors of Christianity have this in common. They are rejecting the righteousness of Christ, received by faith, and they are instead resting in their own righteousness, which they perform for the sake of men. 
The same is true of every other religion in the world. Catholicism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, Mormonism, the JWs, etc. All of them are the products of man's never-ending search for a nice set of fig leaves. This group has their own designer fig leaves. This group has their own. Switch religions and you just have to pick a new set of them. But it consists of outward rituals, easy enough to do, that impress no one but other sinners. And the righteousness of these religions, it goes no deeper than the skin. Polishing the outside of the cup while the heart remains untouched. And the same can be said for systems of self-righteousness that are not formal religions, which we see in the pagan world of today, things like social justice and saving the planet through green technology and things like that. Why are these people so absorbed in these projects? Because they're looking for fig leaves, because they need them. You can't just be naked. You can't take it. You've got to cover yourself. In Matthew 23, 23 through 25, we see another feature of fig leaf religion, majoring on minors and minoring on majors. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. So consider the Sabbath, for instance. They added all these rules onto the Sabbath, and Jesus kept breaking those rules. They were very incensed about that. While they cared nothing for the souls of men, and took advantage of widows. They majored on the easy stuff, and they minored on the major stuff. Totally neglected it, actually. It was easy to keep the Sabbath rules that they kept. Don't pick up your pallet and carry it on the Sabbath day. What's so hard about that? Check. Didn't do that. I'm a good person. It's just a policy. It's righteousness by policies. That's what Islam does. It seeks to establish total dominance in a society to set up Islamic policies so that you don't have to fight temptation. It's just done for you through the civil code. And I'm all for righteous civil codes. Don't get me wrong, but we can't be confused. If just something's against the law and I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of the consequences, therefore it's in my heart. Therefore I'm righteous from the heart. But no humility is required there. No heart change is required. No repentance. No love. Those things are disagreeable to the self-righteous. In fact, impossible for those who are dead in sin. So they major on minutiae because they can do that and feel very righteous in the process. Likewise, fig leafers in churches today love to fight about things that are of lesser consequence while they neglect things like love and joy 
and peace and long-suffering and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, humility, purity of heart, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires and its selfishness, the love of money. Those things are totally neglected while we fight about some lesser issue and feel very righteous in the fighting about it. Fighting over the externals of religion is a self-deceiving distraction technique. It distracts attention away from the inward heart failure while at the same time making us feel very righteous and zealous for God. The idea of being counted righteous on the basis of a gift, a gift of righteousness received from Christ, is a real stumbling block to those whom Jesus calls the righteous, those who are working hard to establish their own righteousness and who boast in the law and boast in their convictions and boast in their particular take on how to live the Christian life. It's very difficult for such people to take any interest in renouncing something they've been working so hard on. To see that as filthy rags and to look at the pure white robe of Jesus Christ as what they need for covering. Just why Jesus said he did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The righteous aren't usually interested in a Savior. They're only interested in keeping certain religious rules that make them look and feel strong. So it's this need. It's because we need to be righteous, but aren't, that we have these kinds of problems. This is why we're so defensive to criticism. Can't handle it. It's because we are trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves, and part of our fig leaves is our sense of blamelessness. Not my fault. The woman you gave me. Adam even blamed God in that. The nerve. When you're not righteous, but you need to be, you lie and you bite and you scratch and fight Do whatever you have to do to assume the high ground of righteous one. Self-righteousness is behind the smug look and the strident tone with which many people articulate their positions on various theological points. Self-righteousness is behind many heated quarrels in churches. Self-righteousness is behind the out-of-balance, heavy emphasis that many people give to certain pet themes and preoccupations. So that's the background. We are messed up. Seriously messed up. We come into this world guilty from the get-go, needing to be saved and covered of our nakedness. But rather than running to Christ for covering, our natural instinct is to run away from Him 
and go find ourselves some good fig leaves to sow on, to hide our unrighteousness. And you can well imagine how Satan might use this to his advantage. Wouldn't you use it? The solution is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. The animal skins that God clothed Adam and Eve with were pointing ahead to something. They were an emblem of something else coming in the future. They signified God's provision to cover us, to hide our nakedness. And that provision comes through the work of His beloved Son. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be born under the law and to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law in our place. Jesus came as a second Adam, the last Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do, be perfect. Jesus kept the law to perfection. When Satan tempted him, unlike Adam the first, he resisted and prevailed. Amen. The New Testament is very clear on this point. And listen to these verses that you've heard before. Listen to them again with this in mind of the need that you have to be covered with a perfect righteousness. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's what you need. Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest became us, that it was as becoming to us or fitting for us to have him, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's what you need to be, holy, harmless, and undefiled. 1 Peter 2, 22-23, speaking of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but it committed himself to him that judges righteously. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Matthew 17.5, Peter speaking gibberish, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God himself spoke from heaven twice, first at the baptism, saying, I am well pleased with him. By raising him from the dead, he was declaring, I am well pleased with him. He did not die as a sinner who himself was guilty. He died for the sins of others, and I'm raising him up as signifying many things, but one of them is that his approval still remains upon him. And that's the righteous Savior. So if you are a man or a woman and not a dog or a bird, that's how righteous you must be. If you are a human being, you must be without sin. Sin is not okay. Not the slightest sin, if there was such a thing as a slight sin. 
You must be holy. You must be innocent. You must be undefiled. Totally clean. And the problem is you're not. And I'm not. And there's no possible way we ever could be by the works of the law. The Bible's very clear on that point, isn't it? Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3, 10 through 11, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Those who are of the works of the law who are trying to establish their own righteousness by the works of the law are under a curse because they're not meeting the terms of that covenant of works. You have to be perfect if you want to do that. And once you've botched it, which came the moment you went out of the womb... How are you going to go back and redo it and correct it? Even if from this moment on in your life you said, okay, sin is really serious. I'm never going to do it again. Even if you could possibly succeed, what's to be done about all the failures in your life leading up to that point? Amen. How will you go back and fix that? But the good news is, believers, is that the perfect righteousness of Christ that you need to be justified before God that is yours in Christ, truly. And unbelievers, those of you who are not at this moment in Jesus Christ by faith, the good news for you is that this righteousness will be yours if you renounce your fig leaf project and come to him with your open beggar hands, seeking him for righteousness. Amen. Christ did not come and obey the law of God perfectly in order to show off or to just show you how it's done. He came to obtain perfect obedience so he could give it out. So he could give it to those who trust him for righteousness. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness so that you are truly, really, seriously, no joke. Perfect. And it's not based on your sanctification, on how well you're walking the Christian life. That's not what you're justified. Let's not fall into Catholicism here, where we constantly mingle justification and sanctification. That's what they do. It's based on faith, which is a receiving instrument. Receiving the perfect righteousness of Christ. We're talking about the righteousness in which you stand before God on Judgment Day, not the sanctification righteousness in which you walk. We're talking about justifying righteousness, not sanctifying righteousness or sanctification righteousness. We're not talking about how you feel at the moment. We're talking about what you are as an incontrovertible fact because you are in Christ by faith. 
And remember, because Christ was and is perfect, because he never sinned once, because he didn't omit anything that he was asked to do, his righteousness is as good as it gets, as good as it can be. You can't add to it. Your sanctification righteousness is not a cherry on top that you put on top of his, just, of his righteousness imputed to you that then helps you stand more firm and more upright on the day of judgment. No, it's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ in which you stand. Amen. And since that righteousness is yours by faith, this means that you cannot get any more righteous than you already are this moment. And the reason you can't is because Christ can't get any more righteous than he already is. He's already perfect. And if you're in him and it's his righteousness you've received, then you are already perfect. And you can't add to that perfection. That's your hope for judgment day. That is your judgment day confidence. You can't get any better or any holier than you already are in him. You can't improve upon perfection. And if you could just believe this, brothers and sisters, dear children of God, you would be happy people. You would be one happy brother and one happy sister. And a lot of your issues would disappear like the morning mist. If you could just believe it. Well, with respect to spiritual warfare, finally getting around to that. It's the problem. There's the solution. Do you suppose Satan might have an interest in distracting you from this perfect justifying righteousness that is yours by faith? Do you suppose he might have an interest in getting you to doubt that you are righteous before God? If you doubted it, here's what would happen. You would slip back into orphan mode, slip back into self-righteous, self-justification mode. You would walk in pride again. You would be comparing yourself with others again, blaming other people for your faults, failing to ask forgiveness. Oh, no, can't do that. That would be admitting that you've done wrong to someone, and that is a threat to the self-made righteousness you're working so hard to maintain. If Satan could get us to forget that we are perfect in Christ, we would then be find ourselves being jealous of other people who have greater talents or gifts than we do. And we might resent that person and set up some sort of unspoken, silly competition between us and them where we could come out on top. If we forget that our righteousness is in Christ, we might try to act smarter or more knowledgeable than we really are because we'd be tempted to establish knowledge as our righteousness instead of Christ as our righteousness. If someone said something that we didn't know, we couldn't say, really, I didn't know that. That's interesting. We couldn't say that because we would have to know everything already because knowledge is our righteousness. 
If you're being trained in a job, you couldn't appear to be actually learning something. No, you have to know it already. If we forgot that Christ is our righteousness, we might be tempted to lie and be dishonest about our strengths and our weaknesses, exaggerating the former and minimizing the latter. We couldn't appear to have weaknesses. Oh, no, that would never do. Not only do you have to know everything, but you have to be good at everything. And with respect to true strengths, we would be tempted to stress them all the time and make sure everyone around us knew that the thing in which we were strong, that's the most important thing. That's where it's at. We wouldn't be able to say, like as Paul did, why do you boast in that which you've received? So we would be tempted to express certain things that we're excelling at. So if we're fit and not fat, we'd always be talking about being in shape or eating right, and we'd always be preaching about the sin of obesity. If we manage our money well, we'd always be preaching about the sin of debt and extravagance. If we manage our kids well, we'd always be preaching about the sin of bad parenting. It doesn't take long to figure out what people's functional righteousness is. They'll tell you. It just starts coming out in the conversation. It's where all the emphasis lies, all the stress, all the focus, what we're always harping on. If we were to forget, if the devil was successful and he was to, to convince us that we're not actually righteous in him, to forget that, that we might be tempted to make people think that we're older than we are. If that would get us the respect we covet so much, that would be generally be true of those in their teens and 20s. Or we might be tempted to make people think we're younger than we are <laughs> for the same reason. And that would be true of us in our 50s, 60s, and so on. We might be tempted to make much of our personal convictions about things and put great stress on those things, and we would be harsh toward those who disagree with us because that's our righteousness. Sometimes, you know, we need to have these other fools who believe the wrong things so that we can be favorably comparing ourselves to them. But other times, it's very threatening to have people differ from us because, well, if they're right, what will become of my righteousness? It'll also, the whole reason that I feel so strong and good and righteous is now threatened. You can't be right. If you are, it's devastating to me. You name it, just about anything can become a functional righteousness for, functional righteousness for us. There's how, household righteousness. How many children do you have? Oh, only 10? We got 11. Okay. <laughs> Were your children born in hospitals or at home? No hospital. Oh, Lord, help us. Do you use disposable or cloth diapers? How many months did you nurse? Which homeschool curriculum did you use? Oh, really? We did homeschooling God's way. What diet are you following? 
Are you eating this and this and this? There's educational righteousness. Some people boast in their college education or their degrees beyond that. And some people boast that they have no college education at all, that they've not been there at all. So pick either side of it can become a boast. It's like when Paul said it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but it's faith working through love. The being a new creature that matters. There's a workplace righteousness. What do you do for a career? Sometimes those questions are meant innocently enough. We're just trying to find out about people, you know, just trying to make conversation. <laughs> what do you do? Sometimes it can be a test. What's your position on the totem pole? Like where are you at on the the corporate ladder? How much money do you make? There's clergy righteousness. How many are you running in your church? Mm-hmm. A friend of mine went out to the, uh, well, to a, a big conference where lots of pastors go, and he said, everybody wanted to sit around the table and ask, what are you running? How many are you running? And, of course, all the small church guys are sheepish and feeling, you know, naked because of their small churches. And the bigger the church, the prouder and more boastful you feel. But then we could turn that around and boast that we have a small church because, yeah, because I'm preaching the truth. (laughs) Drove everybody out. Even our things that we might at one point be ashamed of can be turned around and become a source of pride if we so choose. Satan loves this stuff. This is all pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Don't think he's not smack dab in the middle of all of this. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ, in which you are holy and blameless and undefiled. And rest in that. Rest. Just where you, it goes out of your shoulders and just, Deep breath. I've arrived. I'm here. I can rest. I don't have to play this game anymore. Thank you, Lord. Rejoice in it. Remind yourself of it often. We already have this justifying righteousness, but Paul is telling us to do something with it in Ephesians 6. To put it on. It has to be in our thoughts. That's what he means by putting it on. One last point of emphasis here. The breastplate is also a protection against Satan's accusations. As I said at the beginning, Satan loves to tempt us to sin and then accuse us when we take the bait, turn around and throw it in our face. And we talked about not giving him ammunition to shoot us with, but but we do fail, don't we? And so what then? What happens when we fail? It's one thing to say, well, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have given an ammunition, and that's true. That needs to be said, but, but what now? 
Is there any protection now against his accusations? Or I should have to live with permanent shame and guilt and have him be a prosecuting attorney in my ear for the rest of my life, bringing this up over and over and over and over and over again. Is there no recourse? There is. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5 provides us with a beautiful picture of this. You're familiar with this passage. This is Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord and Satan standing there to accuse. And he shewed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Literally, it's Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. Because that's what his name means. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. There's his filth. It's true. So when Satan stands there to accuse him, he's not making stuff up. It's, look at that. Look at those clothes. You've got to be kidding me. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre on his head. And they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. That's the solution. That's the armor. That's the breastplate of righteousness given by God. Take away the filthy garments. Give him pure, clean, white ones. That's the righteousness of Jesus Christ being pictured there. That's our defense against Satan's accusations. Do we need to repent? Certainly. No doubt. But the point is that in and of ourselves we are unclean and filthy and Satan could accuse us all day long with never, without lying once. Things that we've done in the past, things that we've done recently, and even if we're doing relatively well, it seems, in sanctification righteousness, our refuge is the perfect obedience of Christ. Amen. That is our strong tower. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. No condemnation. Jesus took all that on the cross. Romans 8, 33 through 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. That is our breastplate. That is our righteousness. It's, it's borrowed from Jesus Christ, but it's permanently on loan. It is, in fact, ours as a gift. Let us stand in it and let us rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach the gospel. I pray that it will have come with power in the hearts 
of all of those who are gathered here. We are in need this day, Lord, of sermons that come with your power, but I cannot do that. That's beyond me. I need you to do something when I preach. I need you to preach when I preach. I pray, Lord, that this truth would get through the, the thick crust of habits and pride and self-righteousness and burst through that, and that for everyone there would be like a discovery of paradise. Enable us, Lord, to rejoice in Christ and what he's done and his perfect work on the cross. Let us never turn our sanctification righteousness into our, the righteousness in which we stand, upon which we hope to be accepted before you on judgment day. Let it be what your son has